Today's teaching text comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, it's so good to see all of you. And it's so good to welcome all of you to, uh, to church in Middle School 51 again. Uh, the light streaming in the farmer's market just beside us. I don't know how your journey here was, but it uh, stirs up a lot, of, a lot of memories for me. Some of you, you may be new to our church, and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's nice to be here. Um, but we, we were thinking about, you know, we celebrate our 10-year anniversary as a church in this, um, you know, in this space, and part of what we did as a, a part of marking that moment was we just collected a bunch of prayers um, for uh, for the next 10 years of our church and was just thinking about how do we mark this moment of coming back into this school and to this space that has meant a lot to the journey our church has, has been on. And so one thing, as you came in, you received a card along with the communion elements. And I just want to let you know what that is. That's an opportunity for you to zone out in some part of the sermon that you're not that into. And what you can do is just write on, the, on one side of the card, you don't have to put your name on it, it's totally anonymous, but write on one side of the card something that you're grieving, that you feel like um, you know, was a, a, a true loss in the last 18 months um, of, your, of your life or the life of this community, whatever, you know, you, you want to put there. And then on the other side, just write an honest prayer. This is something I'm praying for. Uh, for it could be for your life. It could be for our church. It could be for our world, our community. But just um, write out the prayer. And then before we go, 
Again, don't, you don't put your name on it so it's, it's, you know, no one's going to know that this was your prayer or something or your loss. But uh, I want to invite you to drop these in this golden bowl in the front. And the significance of that is um, there's this picture in Revelation that says um, when we pray something, that that's actually the utterance of that prayer off of our lips. It's not the end of that prayer. That actually our prayers are collected in some sense and offered perpetually before the throne of God, which is a beautiful poetic picture. That actually our, our prayers would be collected in, in golden bowls. And it's like, this is, what does this mean? And how much of this is metaphor? How much of this is actually going on? I'm not exactly sure, but I do know that um, prayer doesn't end the moment the, the words fall off of your lips. And so we thought, what a powerful thing to um, put our losses and our prayers before God in these, in these bowls. And then just um, to... to maybe have even a shared record of what we're praying together as we enter this next season as a church. So um, that's a little participation activity for you today, and uh, it is truly a joy to welcome you, um, to welcome you in. I just want to ask God in prayer, come Holy Spirit. Lord, we have already been worshiping, singing, pouring out our hearts, God, but we just invite you to make us aware right now that you are near. And I want to pray for that little exercise, as simple as it might be, I pray there would be layers of meaning and depth and, and maybe comfort and healing that comes from naming what we've lost and saying what we're hoping for. God, this passage says that in you, Jesus, we have a living hope, that our hope isn't just a concept, but it has a heartbeat, it has blood in its veins, it has a smile on its face. What a, what a thing. Uh, so I pray that yeah, you would give us courage, discernment, faith this morning. And uh, the best part about being together and being together in this space would be that you are here in our midst. So make us aware of that in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I want to sh- start off the sermon with a bang and share um, three really difficult moments in my life. So buckle up, that'll be fun. Um, but I, I'm going to try to keep them quick. Uh, and some of you have, will have heard parts of these stories before, but um, I lived in, in, in the summer of 2003, I lived in Western China uh, for several months, and I was on my way to teach an English class early in my time there, and this taxi swerved over about three lanes um, to try and pick me up, and this caused an accident in which an 11 or 12-year-old boy was thrown from the back of a cart that was being pulled by a motorcycle onto the street. So myself and the boy's grandfather or father were the first there to arrive at at his injured um, body. And uh, it was a traumatic moment in all the ways you would imagine. And the boy would not survive. And so he was rushed in a taxi off to a hospital. We found our way to the hospital um, with some help of some translators. And I was uh, there when the boy's parents, family, received the news that he was not going to make it. So I was in just desperate grief. Um, I thought that I had come on this trip to be, you know, to serve, to love, to be some, you know, some sort of like, you know, big, you know, like uh, expression of the light of God's love. And here I felt responsible for this accident. Um, and uh, I actually, through the asking through some translators, I was able to get back to the hospital morgue, and I had all the faith in the world that God would like do a miracle if we asked. So I prayed over this boy's body to come back to life twice, um, and, no, and nothing happened. Um, so I'll never forget that day uh, for obvious reasons, but it shaped something about my understanding of God, my understanding of prayer, my understanding of, of faith. 
And uh, I've spoken about some of that story here before, but a part I don't know that I've mentioned is that night I uh, was trying to come to grips with the events of the day, and I was in this restaurant and um, you know, just sort of sitting almost dumbfounded. And um, I, 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 was, I was processing, and, and a guy who I didn't know very well who was a part of the team that we were there you know, in connection with, he just shared some, some counsel with me, very simple words. Um, but they were just reminders about who God says we are and how sometimes life works in unexpected and mysterious and difficult to grasp ways. And he just gave me some simple instructions for why it was still possible to have any measure of hope on a day like that. And I will tell you, his words made a difference to me, not just in my mind, but in my body. I actually felt an experience of peace that I really desperately needed. Story one, I told you we were starting with the banks. Uh, story two, um, in, in the spring of 2005, my father, again, a story I've mentioned here before, had a massive heart attack around one in the morning on a Thursday. And um, my parents lived out in a rural area, it took the ambulance a long time, they missed the turn to the road. Anyway, they got there after a long time and um, they were able to stabilize his heart, but his brain had been damaged and would never fully you know, recover. And so on Sunday morning, he died. And during those days of sitting in the hospital, uh, one of the men who um, I had actually gone to China to serve as a part of their organization and the business they were starting, uh, they were doing handmade Tibetan rugs. and, and, um, um, And it was not the same man who gave me the counsel that night in the restaurant, but the man who I had sort of spent the most time with. He came into the hospital and we sat together in those awkward hospital lobby, you know, moments of life. And, um, and I was just reeling and, you know, sort of like zoning out and, and, and not knowing what to do with what was happening and realizing my life was changing, my mom's life was changing. And as we sat there, he shared a few things with me. And, and what he shared was uh, he reminded me about my identity as a follower of Jesus And he said things that didn't fix what was happening. It didn't bring my dad back to health. Um, But it lifted my eyes just a little bit to have a different perspective than the one that was sort of like all around me and encircling me. And his words were a true comfort to me. Again, I felt something not just in my thought life, but in my body. I experienced peace, being reminded of my identity, being given some perspective, being told that hope was possible. One more. In, in 2017, um, uh, a, dear, a, a dear friend of mine who uh, had planted the first Trinity Grace Church in Manhattan um, and who I had worked with on a team for almost eight years. Um, this was our first meeting of the year. It was in January where everyone was back from their travels. And he told myself and our executive pastor, Josh Staten, who we were working together closely, that he needed to make a change and that he was going to stop being a part of these 11 churches that we were leading as, as one organization at the time, all under the name Trinity Grace. And it was one of those meetings where you just like, like a jolt just hits you, and you're like, oh my goodness, everything is changing right now. And though I could understand some of the reasoning that went into the choice he was making, um, and, and I believe truly, as I look back on that moment now, that God has carried us through in many powerful ways expressing grace. It was still a, a massively difficult day. Uh, 
And so I walked home from Midtown, just in a daze, basically. Seven miles, if you want to do the math, from, um, from basically like the library, Bryant Park area to my house. I just walked home, and I was in a daze again, kind of just like walking for, you know, 10 minutes and then throwing up a prayer and then saying, what are you doing? And then shaking my head and then walking some more. Um, and I sensed something really beautiful that God, I believed God's hand had been on, uh, was going to be ending or changing significantly. And I wondered if God was somehow leaving me behind. Um, all of my insecurities as a person, as a leader, as a pastor, were on full volume in my heart and mind that day. I wonder, uh, you know, is, is God taking the blessing somewhere else? And are we being left behind? So near the end of the walk, I made it over the bridge, I'm back in Brooklyn, I'm coming up the, the, the slope of Park Slope, I call Ireland, I have a friend there who leads a church in Dublin, and I tell him what's happened, I vent, and first person I told, before my wife anyway, I vent my heart um, to him, and I tell him many of my fears and frustrations, I told him I, I was afraid that God was leaving me behind to bless others, and he listened very carefully, and then he shared some words with me. And what do you think he shared? He reminded me who I was. He told me about the reality, again, of being a member of God's family, what that means and what it doesn't always mean, uh, and, and what it means to be a, a part of that family because of the gospel. Um, and he reminded me really importantly, he reminded me that God didn't work the way my fears were shouting that God worked. And that was really important. He gave me some perspective on my pain. And then he told me this. He told me he, not just God, but he told me he wasn't going anywhere. Basically that he was willing to walk with me through whatever happened and keep listening and keep picking up the phone when I called. I was unbelievably grateful for his words. And once again, I experienced a change, not just in my mental uh, ideas and how they were collected in my brain, but I actually experienced peace at the end of that call. So three pretty agonizing moments for me. You have your own. And three sets of counsel. And each one, I got reminders about my identity. I got some perspective for the suffering I was going through. And I realized that my sense of the experience in the moment wasn't the whole story. As powerful as what my experience of the story was, it wasn't the whole picture. And that was a big deal. It was important to know that I was just experiencing one layer of the many layers that were available in what was going on. Here is who you are, and here is what you have in God that cannot be taken away. Here is one way to see your pain in the context of a larger story that's going on, and here is why you rarely see everything that's going on in a given, given moment. When I read the letter that the Apostle Peter directed towards these churches in, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, what I hear is a seasoned follower of Jesus, an apostle, doing that. Doing what the people on the other end of the phone or on the other side of the restaurant were do, or in the hospital lobby were doing to me in that moment of my own agonizing moments. He's, he's doing a similar thing for the people of God who are facing immense difficulty, immense challenges, immense pain, reminding them who they are, Helping put their pain into some context and not, not trying to take all the pain away because that would be, we know, impossible. 
but giving them some way to hang on to endurance, some way to hang on to hope, and then showing them the moment that they were in. What a thing to plot them in a particular place in the world. We're going to look at this letter up until Advent, and there's going to be way more than we can cover in any given week. These, like, the, the, the sentences are so dense, of 12 verses, and you're going to need to study this and dig into this and get your hands dirty with a group of people outside of Sunday. So we're not going to try to hit every single thing available in, in these weeks, but I think it's so powerful that the Apostle Peter would be saying, when you're going through pain, when you're going through difficulty, when you don't know what to do, you need to be reminded of who you are. You need to be reminded that your pain has a larger context and you need to be reminded that you don't always see the full picture of the story that you're in. And I think if we could do that this morning, it would be a powerful thing to be reminded. So the way Peter begins is really important. We know something about the guy who's writing this letter, the Apostle Peter. So even in the first words of the letter, something is being communicated, right? This was the guy who was originally named Simon. So just his name represents a deep transformation that's gone on in his life. He was called by Jesus a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the massive catch of fish. He became a disciple, but he wasn't just one of the 12. He was a really close friend of Jesus. He was one who got to go camping with Jesus. Jesus once and Jesus was transfigured in front of him, which is, a, is a, uh, you know, a theological way of saying they saw what was true about Jesus in the most fundamental way revealed to them on this mountaintop experience. And Peter's like, let's stay here forever. We'll keep camping. I'll make tents. And, 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 and Jesus is like, no, we're going back down. But he had these unbelievable experiences with the person of Jesus. But he also has tough moments. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, at one point. Like, not, not something you want to hear a close friend say. But he's preventing, he's trying to stand in his way of going to Jerusalem to the cross. He's like, no way. Jesus, I got you. You don't have to do this. And he's like, get behind me. In the, in the crucial moments, that when Jesus is being arrested, after all of his boasting and all of his pride, Peter denies him, abandons him. We know from his story in the Gospels that it's the grace of Jesus and the power of the resurrection that puts him back together. And so he's part of the group that after Jesus leaves, prays and waits for whatever Jesus had promised. That I'm sure they didn't even fully grasp it with the Holy Spirit. And then he's filled with this spirit and he stands up and preaches the first sermon ever in church history um, at Pentecost. And... Um, Actually, if you read the hard-to-pronounce regions at the beginning of 1 Peter, uh, a bunch of those regions uh, are, are the same areas that people were visiting Jerusalem from on the day of Pentecost. So some of those people might have actually experienced Peter standing up and preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, the message of Jesus' resurrection and this new life that was available in the world when 3,000 were added. So we hear Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect Exiles scattered throughout the, the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's a lot behind that, more than we're actually even going to say. But we know that this man knows something really deeply personally about Jesus himself doing the very thing he's about to do in this letter. Reminding him of his identity. Putting his pain in perspective. And showing him something of the moment he was living in. If you want a reminder of that, go back and read Peter's restoration on the beach with Jesus at the end of the gospel according to John. 
So Peter's writing to these, these, these believers in new communities scattered across the, the, the Roman Empire, scattered across modern-day Turkey, and they're experiencing immense resistance immense resistance to following Jesus. They're suffering in significant ways, not just generally. They're suffering in significant ways because they're followers of Jesus. It cuts against the cultural narratives they're living in the middle of, and it's causing them loss and pain. Again, we're going to cover this until we get to Advent, but two massive themes of this letter are how do we relate as followers of Jesus to the wider culture? How do we relate? And that's a big, prevalent, important issue right now. Where do we accommodate the things that are going on? Where do we resist? Where do we try to subvert? Where do we try to transform? How do we relate to what's going on in the wider world? First Peter addresses that over and over again. Another thing that addresses it is when is it better to suffer than to sin? Not as popular of a theme, but when is it better to not give in? in order to keep your convictions, to keep your relationships. And that's a big theme of First Peter. We're going to talk about that. But I think it's massively important, and you're probably already getting this because I've said it multiple times now, how Peter begins. Remember who you are. See what's happening from God's perspective. Lift your eyes and grasp something of the moment that you're in. I believe when we're in deep pain, when we're in grief, uh, at the right time, these are massively important elements to our comfort, to our care, to our perspective. So I want to just show you really quickly in these first 12 verses uh, how Peter says, here's who you are, um, here's how to make sense of the struggle you're in, and here's an opportunity that you have that's unique to your moment. So the first thing is, is who you are. So Peter's telling them who they are, and I want you to know you stand in the you stand in the stream with them, hearing who we are as well. This is part of what it means to be a believer of the gospel, a follower of Jesus, someone filled with the Spirit, someone brought into the kingdom of God. To, to God's elect exiles scattered through the, the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit by the, by, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So Peter says this to them, I know you're scattered, and you're living like exiles. You feel like you are not at home where you are, and many of you feel like you're unsupported in, in the place that you're in. Maybe, maybe you're alone, maybe you're unsupported, maybe you feel like the whole world is living out a different story to the one that you're living in the middle of. And the, and the theme, as Jackie called us to earlier, the theme of exiles and exiles returning home is massive in the narrative arc of the scriptures, and we're not even gonna dive into all of that. But Peter's saying, listen, I know your lived experiences, your lived experience is littered with pain, and many ways for feeling like an exile and feeling scattered. But I want to remind you as well as, uh, as of those realities being true, you're also deeply loved and chosen by God. So Peter focuses on the fact that God has been working to bring them into the family. I want to, I want to say it this way. He situates them in the divine conspiracy of redemption. Dallas Willard entitled a book, The Divine Conspiracy, on the Sermon on the Mount years back. And it's a phrase that I think about a lot because this mystery that God is one God and yet is a, is a triune community is, is, is mind-blowing in tons of different ways. But 
Peter makes a, a, a very clear uh, distinction here to show each member of the Trinity at work in a, I want to say, a conspiratorial way to bring us into the family of God. So God the Father has a plan. God the Son lived out the plan and gives his life. And the Spirit applies this to their life to bring them into the family. So this God, who is one being and yet is triune, is reaching out in the very community at the center of his being to bring us into the family and give us a share of the things that God has had a share of from the beginning. God knew exactly where they were. They felt scattered. They felt exiled. And God knew exactly where they were and was conspiring to come and get them. The triune God was fully at work to make a home for them in his love and redemption. So maybe many of us know what it feels like to be scattered, know what it feels like to feel exiled, but Peter reminds them alongside that, let me see, got that? We're tracking so far? He's reminding them who they are. And when you're in pain, being reminded of who you are, actually kind of always, being reminded of who you are is really important. But he goes on beyond that. He, he, he begins to sort of like get out this treasure chest of what it means to be in the gospel. And he, he just lays these things out for them. And so he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. If you were to make a 64 bracket challenge of the greatest sentences in the New Testament, this has to make it to at least the, the top eight, the elite eight. This is in there. This is unbelievable. This is so rich. New birth, living hope, share the resurrection and inheritance that was never going to perish, spoil, or fade. Thank you. Yes, I take this. I mean, my suspicion is we are not letting this amaze us the way we should. And that's okay. I'm not here. I'm not here to shit on you. But I want you to see, church, where are you at? Do you know you have a new birth that is so substantial that the way you are in Christ is not the way you were born? That a new reality has come alive in you? You're a son or daughter of God and your power to resist sin, your power to know that you are forgiven, your power to love, to birth the things, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is profound in you. God's not sitting up there saying, gosh, I just wish there was some way we could really make this happen. He gave the new birth. In Christ, we've come alive in a new way, church, that the experience of it is like, oh, I've been so loved that I've been forgiven and brought into union. And this union is so substantial that the Spirit of God lives in me. That's the new birth. And what does that feel like and look like on a daily basis? It looks like living hope. Not just a mental ascent to certain ideas about God, but hope with a heartbeat, hope with blood in its veins, hope with a smile on its face, hope with an embrace. I'm giving you a living hope. Not just some past reality that I can look to so that my, my spiritual passport is stamped for heaven when I die. I'm talking about a living hope in the, in the sinews of your daily life. And then share in Jesus' resurrection. Basically, here's the gospel message. That when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the firstborn of a new type of humanity. And that that's actually our life. So 
the Apostle Peter, who had come to experience this in a visceral uh, living hope kind of way, says, this is what you have a share in in first century Turkey. And I'm telling Jesus, and we have a future. That's the inheritance that is never going to perish, spoil, or fade. Let me tell you this, and we say things like this a lot, but the best things in your life that you have as a follower of Jesus can never be taken away from you. You cannot be snatched out of his hand. God's not gonna be like, oh, initially I chose you totally by grace, but now I've started evaluating you by performance and you're out. No way. It's just not how, it's just not how God, 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 God works. It, our inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. The love, the forgiveness, the union, the joy, the presence of God that is yours in Christ is yours forever. Now, are you experiencing it? That is a question. The best is yet to come. We're not diminishing away into a place of no life. We're speeding towards the fullest revelation of our life that is to come. So, how we doing? You're doing great. I want to tell you that. First time back in here and you're doing great. Um, I'm so glad Peter gives us this, this powerful reminder of our identity. But I want to tell you pastorally, true, true confession moment. There's a part of this that throws me off because I think there's a part of this that actually brings all that beautiful new birth, living hope, inheritance language crashing back to earth. And I want to tell you where it comes. This inheritance, I'm down, is kept for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, inheritance, amazing. God's power, amazing. How will I experience it? Through faith. It's like, God, did God get the tech wrong here? Should he have been pouring my life? Sometimes that feels like Niagara Falls coming through an eyedropper. Like all the promise through faith. God, are you sure you want to go through faith? Maybe some other way. Maybe you just do all of it and totally embrace me. But God seems to keep making a powerful place for participation. I want God sometimes to just do everything. And he keeps saying, you have no idea how highly I prioritize relationship. I want you to have a hand in choosing and saying yes and being embraced and experiencing this. I want all the power, the massive, glorious Niagara Falls to come through your faith. This promise of God is true even when my mood and my circumstances and my work life and my finances are, some, are saying something else. I'm living by this promise as if it's true. I'm being tested by this promise and I'm testing them. God is relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And is committed to you and I learning to walk in that relationship. And that brings us to the next part. If you're freaking out because you're like, is this point two? We're only at point two. We're going to be fine. Guys, we're doing great. Just like deep breath into the mask. Breath check. How we doing? Maybe this is the time you write your card, things I've lost, short sermons, um, whatever. He puts their pain in perspective. In all this, in all the things he just said, new birth, living hope, resurrection share, inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You need to talk about this with a group. I said this already. We're starting a bunch of new groups October 3rd today. Um, if you don't have a group to be involved in outside of Sunday, I want to tell you, please do it because I'm going to scratch the surface of the, those things I just read and you need to unpack it with, with other people who are learning to know who you really are. But I want to say two things come out in, in Peter putting their perspective in pain, uh, or yeah, putting their pain in perspective and that I think puts our pain in perspective. And, and, and it's two things, one, he goes from laying out the beauty of who they are in Christ to seeing how that relates to the difficulty they are facing. We can't even go through naming them, but you have experienced grief. I want you to know the heart of God aches around the grief that we experience when we experience the, the difficulty, the brokenness of the world. When God sees the brokenness rippling out through his story, through humanity, he says, no, this can't be the way it is. And he intervenes in the person of Jesus in history to, 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 to redeem that reality. We suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but I wanna tell you two things that are absolutely real and true. Thank you for where we are on the time. One, is if you try to live as a follower of Jesus, you are going to experience the undeniable reality of resistance. <laughs> the undeniable reality of resistance. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but there are three ancient um, sort of like uh, typological ways that Christians throughout the centuries have talked about this resistance. And they, they, they get categorized around flesh, world, and devil, which just sounds like really old language that maybe you feel resistant to and doesn't draw you in. But they're, they're important categories because it basically is saying there are internal systems that are at work in every human being where we want to be our own gods, where we want to be in control. is flesh. It's not skin. It's not sexual sin per se. It's, it's an operating system of trying to get the most out of life without taking God into account. That's resistance number one. The other is the world. It's the systems, the stories, the narratives, the powers that are at work in our world. So when you think about racism and injustice and, 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 and historical wars and, and devastation and, and you think about like different economic realities in, in America that come to bear on your everyday life, there are aspects of that that make it difficult to live in the way of the kingdom flesh, world, and then devil. Maybe the least popular for us very educated 21st century Brooklynites, but the scripture keeps insisting that there are actually real spiritual forces at work that do things like uh, temptation, accusation, deception to draw us away from God and God's promises and God's kingdom. If you wanna dive into this, I haven't read it, but I have such a clear instinct that it's gonna be amazing. A friend of our church, John Mark Comer, came out with a book this week called Live No Lies, and it's on these ancient uh, uh, sort of places of resistance in the Christian life, flesh, world, devil. So if you're looking for a resource, it's called Live No Lies, John Mark Comer. That's my, I haven't read the book, um, uh, pr promotion of it. So if it's terrible, I'm sorry, write to John Mark. I'm sure you can find his email on the internet. But I want to tell you this, ignoring any three of those areas of resistance will leave you in a place where you're really surprised at life. Ignoring any of the three of them is a mistake. But here's the thing. 
When you follow Jesus, when you walk in step with God by the Holy Spirit, you're going to face resistance. And there's particular types of resistance that come with trying to walk in the way of Jesus. Some of you like have seen it in like, why is it easier to watch television than memorize scripture? I and mean, there's just a ton of different way, reasons for that. But like when you try to keep a regular prayer time or keep a life of secret generosity or do the work of forgiving first or, or, or be honest and bold and winsome in identifying with Jesus in your workplace, you're gonna find massive amounts of difficulty in, internally, externally, and then spiritually. Flesh, world, devil. But the passage goes one step further than that. It says not only are you going to experience the undeniable reality of resistance, you're going to experience the very unpopular reality of testing. Sometimes in the life of faith, we go through testing. And I honestly haven't heard a lot about this in the church in the last 20 years. Uh, because it just doesn't fit our sort of like individualistic, um, you know, basically like comfort-based understanding of God as, as, as life coach, that that God would, would let us go or even direct us through a test. Somehow feels like maybe God is being harsh or unloving to us, but the scripture doesn't bat an eye in seeming to say over and over again that God is willing to let us go through a period of testing to find out what is in us. And maybe one of the most important things that happens is that we see what is in us deposited by God and that God knows as a loving father they're ready for more than they're currently experiencing we come to the idea of testing with suspicion like I bet there's something lacking in you and I'm going to put you through this test and prove that there's something lacking in you I think God comes to the idea of testing as a loving father saying I want to entrust you with so much more I wonder if you'll believe me in this moment and walk through this process with me so that your character will be formed so that you'll come to know me in this way that's not based on mood or circumstances or, ex or out outward blessing, but you come to trust my character in a fundamental way. But I want to say this, even, this is another thing, let's get into this in our groups, because the idea of testing, the reality of it shows up over and over in the scripture. God tests Israel, and he says, that's what I'm doing. Then, even more bizarre, something I wish might not be in there, is that the enemy seems to sometimes have a role in it. Look at the story of Job. Look at the story of Peter. Jesus seems to say in prayer, hey, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you, but I've prayed that you won't fall. What? I wish it wasn't like that. But one way or another, God seems to be willing for us to go through periods of testing where what is true about our heart and life gets revealed to God, gets revealed to us, and, and it becomes a part of the Ebenezer record of our life of walking with God. This community is being tested, and they're given the reason. You're not always given the reason why you're being tested. They're given the reason. <laughs> These have come that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Something incredible is pouring into your life through faith. Your faith is immensely valuable and you need to see that. I want to say this, I believe God initiates and holds our faith inside of the larger story of his promises that he will not break. So when we go through testing, it's not like God saying, if you pass the test, you're in the family. No, you go through the test because you're in the family. He's, he's it, it, like, it, 
This is such a terrible example, but like the first time I gave my son like five bucks and I was like, you go to the corner store for the family now, okay? And don't pass go, do not collect $200. Go into the store, buy the thing that you're told, don't spend any more money and come directly back. Now, right, it's a, it's a small test, right? With a bunch of like buffers around it to see if he's ready for the next stage of responsibility. Not because if he doesn't do that, he's not my son anymore. It's because I wanna be able to give him more. And so this small test is, is, is saying, okay, he's ready to handle the five bucks. He's, he's ready to handle the scooter ride down the hill. He's ready to handle the social interaction with the people in the bodega. He's ready to handle remembering the list, right? All the things. But we, so there are things that God promises that transcend even our ability to hold on to them, that he is going to keep his promises. But we experience so much of the abundant life by acting on our faith. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Some of us know off in the distance somewhere that we're in with God because of what Jesus has done, but we are not experiencing inexpressible and glorious joy of acting by faith in our daily real lives of walking with him. I don't know all the reason God's, God tests us. I wanna give you one super small guess as we close because <laughs> I know where we are on time. One reason I think God tests us and it's not everything is that it would be impossible to trust God's character without being absolutely dumbfounded by God's majesty if you could see him. And this is, this is what I mean. Like, there's gonna come a day when we're gonna see the fully revealed glory of God. And when that happens, we won't be walking by faith in the same way that we're walking now. We're walking by sight. And, and, and again, a terrible, small, 40,000 degrees lower than this is the way that we interact with celebrity in our culture, right? Someone achieves something great. They're a movie star or they're a famous athlete. And when you interact with them, there's a level of like awe and reverence that comes into the, to, to, to the and some of you aren't, you're immune to this, but many of us, like we change when we're around someone famous. Right, And that's why you see people who experience celebrity in our culture, they turn around and they seem to be craving genuine, honest relationships with people who knew them before they were famous. I want people who would treat me like a human being. So they want to be with people who knew them in the very beginning or with other celebrities who know exactly what it's like. And it's this weird thing where it's like, I don't want you to love me for my money or my success. And it is so possible to do that with God and his majesty and his power and his glory. And so right now is the time where we're learning to trust his character without seeing all of his beauty. Where we're learning to walk by faith without being overwhelmed with the glory of God in our face. I can look back and see some times of testing in my life and I can see absolutely where I went the wrong, the wrong way or the other way. And I circle back around to that thing, like basically, and that's not like my life stopped and didn't move forward in any way, but like I, I, I know something of this experience. I, I think some of you are in a time where God is saying, I want you to learn to trust me. 
in a way that transcends your circumstances, in a way that transcends your moods, in a way that transcends um, the, the exact, you know, like, moment that, that, that you're in. Not that those things are not, are discounted in any way by what's actually going on, but that you're learning to trust that God is about filling you with reliable, substantial joy that isn't simply based on a good turn of circumstances. And this testing may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I'm going to cut us short. The, the last thing was just seeing the time that, that, that we're in. Um, and I, I won't read the whole passage again because you, you heard it. But basically, he goes back and says, listen, the prophets from of old, they were looking for the moment that you're experiencing now. They got a glimpse of it, a taste of it, but you're actually experiencing it. And he's basically saying, though our experience of life is so full, we rarely see the full picture. And he's saying, I want you to think of the things that God has positioned you uniquely for in this time in history. Do you believe that it is not an accident that you were born at this time of history into this story that the world is playing out right now? We have so much grace behind us and so much grace in front of us. Peter says, listen, there are things that you're getting like, why am I, why am I going through this? Why, why, why is this happening? Why, why this difficulty? Why this grief? Why this pain? We don't see the full story, but there are things available to us right now that are unique in our time of history. How has God positioned you to live the way of the kingdom, the way of love in this moment? And that's what I want to close with. Those are the questions I want to ask you. I don't know what you would write on your card. This is what I've lost. This is what I'm praying for. I hope you will write something and put it in this beautiful golden bowl. But as we close, I want to ask, who needs to remember who they are this morning? New birth, living hope, share in the resurrection, inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. Who needs to remember who they are this morning? Second question, who might be in a time of testing and you need support? You need to know that you're not doing this alone. You need to know the motivation of God is not suspicion but love. Who is going through a time of testing and needs support? And then maybe who of us needs to see the gift of the days that we are alive in? I want to tell you guys, we cannot do this alone. Um, we're scratching the surface of, the, of this letter on, 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 on some level, but the best is yet to come. And I want to close with this. You have an inheritance in Jesus that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And the, the, the trials and the grief that we go through are producing in us something substantial that is going to last, that is going to bear fruit in our world and in the kingdom forever. So what we're going to do is we're going to seal everything we've said this morning in communion. And I just want to give you a moment of silence to ask the Holy Spirit how he is speaking to you today. So I, I pray, God, come Holy Spirit, direct your church in how to respond to your word right now. God, I pray who needs to be reminded of who they are. I pray you just wash over their heart with their true identity in Christ. God, I want to pray for those who may feel like they are in a time of testing and they need support. They need to lift their eyes and, and see beyond just this one moment. I pray maybe even as a community, God, we could see the gift of the time that we are alive and not just the challenge. Church, communion is... 
the meal in which we say, my response to God's word is not that I keep all the ideas in my head and that I fully execute my plan of response, is that I am nourished and sustained by the, the body and blood of Jesus. This meal is our hope. If you need the communion elements, you can slip your hand up and people are coming through right now uh, to give these out. But let's prepare our hearts, church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're speaking to our minds and God is speaking to our hearts and to our bellies and saying, the whole of you needs to be nourished with your new identity, with a way to understand suffering, and with some perspective on the moment that you're in. One thing I can say absolutely is that we receive our identity by grace and not by earning. This meal says that. That when we suffer, we don't have to do it alone because Christ has plunged himself into the story of our suffering on the cross and in his life. And that one day the resurrection we share in is going to be our truest future. So church, I want to pray, God, would you bless the bread and the cup and bless your church as she's nourished by this grace in our actual bodies. And then would you help us to respond in obedience to your word in our lives. In Jesus' name. As you're ready, you can take out the bread. Heavenly Father, bless this bread as we receive it. Nourish us with your grace. In Jesus' name, the bread. God, we thank you for the, the, the blood of the new covenant of grace, God. As we, as we drink this, we receive your mercy. And take the cup. So here's the, the whole rest of the service is just you and, and us as a community interacting in a real way with God. There's going to be songs going on that you can sing out and praise to God. I want to invite you, if you're ready, to come and bring a prayer and, and a record of loss and put it in this golden bowl. There are um, rugs up here at the front if you just want to change your posture and kneel before God and you want to answer those questions. I need to remember who I am. I need some help in this time of pain that I'm in. I need some perspective. I need some support in this testing. Um, I just want to invite you to respond as the Holy Spirit leads you in these next moments. Let's linger in the presence of God and then we'll hear the benediction together. So we're going to sing out Bring your prayer to the front. If you want to linger uh, and, and kneel before God or change your posture, we have people that would love to pray for you. Let's respond as the Spirit leads.